Well, pretty soon we'll have to be saying Happy New Year. We'll be forced to say it. It'll be mandated federally. Welcome to This Week in Common Sense, starring Paul Jacob. My name is Timothy Verkula. I'm going to try to help Paul, you know, run through the big stories of the week that have appeared at thisiscommonsense.org. My problem is I started out this episode very sleepy. So, Paul, where do we begin when I'm barely awake? Let's cut to what might have been, you know, before we had pandemics and, you know, we were worried about World War Three and, you know, you name it. Um, and the country was being ripped apart in every, you know, every way imaginable. What would we have given to have a president basically say there's no federal solution to any problem? Just name any problem and keep naming. And you would just you'd never find anybody, any president to suggest that you know, hey, there's this isn't for the federal government. Maybe maybe uh, you go back to Reagan or something or, you know, uh, there was some Republican who who for a moment or two uh, used that against something and then turned around and said, hey, let's federalize this if uh, if they could do it in a conservative way. But this week, I think it was actually right at the end of last week, Joe Biden. Basically came clean on COVID-19, and this isn't going to be solved by the federal government. You know, President Trump did all kinds of things through the federal government, although he he kind of, you know, in terms of lockdowns and stuff, left that to the states. Biden came in and was very critical of state governors who didn't lock down or do exactly as as, uh, Democratic state governors were doing. Not all. And, of course, the, the big thing is, the Democrats that a year ago, they were going to solve COVID. They were going to stop this pandemic and solve the problem. And, uh, you know, to come out now and basically say this is going to be up to the states. And and I think here's kind of the, the bottom line. Governments aren't very good at stopping viruses. They might be able to stop commerce. (laughs) They may be able to stop criminals. They may be able to stop invading armies, but they just aren't very good at stopping viruses. And you know what? Let's not give them too much of a hard time because I don't know who is very good at stopping viruses. Viruses seem to be uh, uh, very effective at not being stopped. And, And so... You know, we've talked before, Tim, about, you know, this Omicron uh, variant, maybe uh, just what the doctor ordered, if we had some sensible doctors, in the sense that it does appear to be spreading, hitting everybody, not everybody, of course, but just, you know, hitting a lot more folks and not nearly as deadly from what we can tell so far. And so, that's what you want. You want people building up their immunities while they're not dying. And, uh, and of course, you know, COVID-19 has not been a horrifically deadly thing to catch. It has really been deadly for people with comorbidities and sometimes even young people, if those comorbidities are serious enough. And one of them, as we've pointed out, is obesity. Uh, and we've also pointed out, as we did in, in scripts this week, that, you know, there are all kinds of things that could be done to help uh, people making sure they have enough vitamin D, uh, you know, these, these simple type things that have really kind of been ignored when it comes to, you know, we're, we're all about a vaccine and the federal government and big science telling us exactly what to do and saving the day for everybody. And, you know, this just from day one, Well, viruses aren't, you know, we haven't had a lot of success. Um, You know, the common cold is is we haven't cured it. And chances are we never will. Uh, I say that, I don't know, but I, you know, it's been around for a long time. And and what we're looking at is probably this COVID-19 becoming much more like the common cold. Um, So anyway, the, the interesting thing from a political standpoint is that we have a president who promised to be our savior, who just said, ah, mea culpa, 
we got nothing here. And that's worth noting. The other interesting thing to me is that it's it, there's all kinds of ways to fight COVID. The fact that the federal government kind of throws up its hands and then, you know, they're still doing, they're still spending plenty of money. They're still doing all kinds of things. I don't, um, that was a little hyperbole, but, uh, but it's not so bad because the government isn't going to solve this one. We will over time in the way that these things happen on our planet. Um, and then, you know, maybe we ought to talk about it. And you may have some some more thoughts on on uh, on Biden's mea culpa, Tim, before we do. But we had another one against the regime, another angle on uh, on the, the pandemic this week as well. One of the problems after you've looked at these pieces, you've written them and then I look at them and fiddle with them and then we put them up, is that they sort of blend together in my mind after a while. And it's very hard for me to remember which one said what, which. But I do notice that no federal solution uh, we talk about Biden's admission that, that they didn't have enough tests prepared. This was about his National Governors Association talk. That's the context of that admission of his failure and the federal government's general incompetence. And he admitted that they should have ordered you know, billions of tests or half of, I forget what the numbers are now, but they, uh, they, they need more tests. Uh, and you point out here, well, maybe that's not true either. I mean, maybe testing, there's real, there are real reasons to believe that the tests have never been very good, uh, that they have too many false positives, as you say, and, and it also causes the panic. And now they're trying to panic us over tests, you know, more cases right? about Omicron, which isn't that big of a deal. And to me, the biggest story that I've seen recently was a mainstream story. I forget which uh, which paper, but it might have been the Guardian, it might have been the Israeli paper, but uh, the Jerusalem Times is that what it is? is, that, is yeah, that, that's one. And the basic case was that the, the Israeli government was taking credit for all past coronavirus successes on their on their vaccine plans and what they did, but now they say Omicron's coming. We can't do anything about it. We have to give up, and and we just have to weather this thing out. They basically say all our measures are useless against Omicron. And uh, that was an interesting admission. I don't really believe them when they said they were very successful pr- uh, before because there's been a lot of problems. I mean, I've, I've, I've dealt with uh, Israel's issues, you know, in many uh, debates with my friends about coronavirus. And, uh, and I don't think Israel's is, is a good a sign of success of government uh, pandemic policy as they claim but now they're saying omicron's defeating us there's just no point in even doing any of the things that we were talking about before that was a major admission yes and and it it is interesting too that you have this just like with the the opening lockdown kind of shutdown through the u.s was to flatten the curve for a couple weeks and then became kind of its own thing in, in so many ways, I constantly see people on TV or here on the radio or reading the newspaper, them talking about COVID as if it's just one more try to get everyone to wear their masks just right and to get everybody vaccinated and then poof, it's gone. And it's, it's upsetting in kind of a deep way. I mean, I don't cry or anything, but, uh, but it's, it's the sort of thing when you hear otherwise intelligent people talking about it as, and hyping it as if we're just you know, steps away. If everyone does the right things, we have all these mitigate, mitigation strategies and we're going to wipe out this virus. And it's just like, I don't think so. And, and I, I, I think I don't know anything about this. I'm like, I'm not Mr. Science. I have friends that's like, you know science, don't you? Tell me something. You know, I, I was uh, arts and letters and, and fooling around. Uh, and so it's like, but I know enough that, you know, geez, there's been, there, there were viruses even before the last couple of years. And they weren't just obliterated because somebody, you know, the federal government did this or that, or everybody did this, and then boom, it's gone. And so we have to stop being really silly about it. We also have to stop being draconian about it. And that's really what our uh, script on, uh, I guess it was uh, Thursday. We tell the story about a mom takes her little kid to 
a restaurant in New York City and he doesn't have his vaccination papers, doesn't have his papers. And he is, you know, the police, all of a sudden there's all these police there. This is the world we're going to live in if people allow that to be the world we live in. And this idea that you can just mandate that people do the medical procedures that you think are best, that's not the way it ought to work. And it's, and it's not working. That's the thing. It, it's, it's the wrong thing to try to do. But it's not a successful strategy either. So even if somehow, okay, I'm not worried about having a completely kind of Nazi-like society, police state where everyone's papers are checked and everyone does exactly this or that, or you can't eat or you can't go to the movies or you can't, you know, leave your town, you can't fly. All these things have been suggested and many of them are in effect different places like New York. We have to look at both sides the one side being that, yes, there's all kinds of things we can freely do to fight viruses and this virus, but there's also things we ought not to do. And uh, at the end of, uh, of the against the regime uh, commentary, I just mentioned three things um, that we ought to try to remember in this. And the, the first was for all the suffering and death that this pandemic has inflicted, it's been mainly on the most vulnerable, of course, it isn't the Black Death. It isn't even really the Spanish flu, which was much more deadly 100 years ago. I don't say that so that, oh, you know, if, if you know people who have died, and I know several people who have died, I don't say it that, oh, that doesn't, oh, it doesn't count. It counts. It's horrible. But we do have to keep things in perspective or we make more horrible moves. So the other two are that being vaccinated against COVID-19 does not prevent one from being infected or from infecting others. And that's a big, important thing to remember. Uh, and look, I'm vaccinated. I'm not Deeply sorry that I'm vaccinated. I'm a little unsure, uh, but uh, but and I'm I'm not rushing to get uh, uh, boosters. I I think the the vaccine's a little leaky, and uh, uh, and you know, for many age groups, I think young people, especially uh, especially little kids, uh, I think that you know it's it's less dangerous to get COVID than it is probably to take the vaccine. But again, talk to your doctor make your own decision or make your decision for your kids. Cause you know, at seven, you know, that's probably not the age that uh, they get to make all the decisions, but don't allow politicians to make those decisions. And then the third point uh, that, that I made was, and this really goes to the first, that this isn't the bubonic plague. Shutting down society also inflicts suffering on people, enormous suffering. That's why we have to keep things in perspective. And I think that's really been the, the biggest problem is that our political leaders haven't owned up, haven't been honest with us, and they think it's okay to hype, to scare. We, we, they need to scare us to get us to do what they want us to do. But you know what? People who treat other people like that, I don't listen to anymore. I don't, I, in other words, when I hear them hyping things, it doesn't scare me. It's, well, I'll take that back. It scares me because it means they're screwing up the normal, natural response. Look, we're not a backwater country where nobody can read or write. We've got a lot of people who know all kinds of things. We're a, a pretty sophisticated electorate, population, whatever you want to call us. And we can figure some things out. We don't need to be treated like children. And the truth is, I've had kids. I still got them. They're, they're grown now. But, uh, but you don't scare them like that because 
when you do that, yeah, you might cause them not to initially do whatever you're trying to scare them from. But ultimately, they look at you like, ah, this, I, I can't get good information. And you'd hate to think your kids didn't think they could get information from their parents. In the same way, when the government isn't honest or hypes things in a ridiculous way, and especially when they, when they don't apologize later, when they think that they were doing you a favor, they're dangerous. They're very dangerous in that situation. I haven't heard anyone say what to me is the most obvious thing about what we've learned from the pandemic. And I think what we've learned from the pandemic is that governments and big business who are heavily invested in big pharma and it's all together are trying to get make, get very, very rich by controlling lots and lots of people. And they're willing to say almost anything and lie through their teeth. I think this is a good case to be made for dissolving the NIH and even the CDC. I think that we're now seeing that it's dangerous to put medical information centralized because it's been corrupted by ideologues and people on the main. So I don't, I don't pretend that other people are going to agree with me. I just think that somebody should be saying, this is the proof. We have it now. Get rid of these organizations because these organizations have done great, great damage in the ways you've mentioned and in other ways. Fauci has been pushing big pharma forever and his record as uh, Bobby Kennedy Jr. has been putting out in his recent book on Fauci. His record is abysmal. We have the whole country, has be the whole world has become much less healthy in certain specific ways that relate to vaccination and his obsession with big pharmacological products. We have lots of allergies out there and immune system, immune efficiency, um, immune system problems out there. After right. Get the word. Right. You know, that, that, I told you this is going to be a bad day for me because my brain is about on half impulse power. Yes. Uh, uh, b before we began the podcast, uh, Tim informed me that, you know, he hadn't slept well and he's had all these different things going on. And it's I think it's wonderful because I told him this means I'll be the smartest person on the podcast. So, hey, it's uh, it's it's a, it, it, we're, we're entering a new year. All kinds of things could change. I'd like to see somebody make an attack on the major institutions and and big medicine. And and of course, being a libertarian, I pretty instinctively like the idea of, of recognizing, hey, these these government agencies you know, maybe that should all be done privately. There are going to be people who say, no, 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 the government has to be involved in this way and that way. Okay. So, but let's recognize what has happened. Even if you say, Tim, Paul, you libertarian wackos, we can't go as far as you want to go. You have to recognize that having so much power in a few hands in Washington, even if they're scientific hands, because the truth is Anthony Fauci is more expert at politics than he is at medicine. I guarantee you, because that's most of what he does on a daily basis and has done for four decades, or is it almost five decades now? I mean, this is so... So don't think that this guy is like seeing patients every day. He's seeing he's seeing people that should be patients, you know, members of Congress and other other, you know, muckety mucks. Uh, this is and it's a real problem when that much power is placed in in, you know, just a few hands. And of course, what have we what have we found through this? Hasn't been blaring headlines, even though it should be. But there was a fight over, what, a year, two years about gain-of-function research. So uh, Rand Paul, senator from Kentucky, doesn't know what he's talking about. And then it comes out that, yes, who, who said? Fauci's own organization said, yes, we funded gain-of-function research. Rand Paul wins, right? No, not if, not if nobody knows. And of course, it was page, you know, 58B in the, in the Washington Post and in different places. It has not been out there. And I read, I've read stories since then who have played up this fight between Fauci and, and Rand Paul and have kind of ended it by saying, 
uh, and there's no evidence that there was, you know, this or that. And it's like, wait a second, these are just, they're just lies and distortions. So look, we don't, it, it, there are all kinds of people who have different views of how you, how you run a society. What's the best way? I think getting medical decisions out of the government's hands is the best way to do it. But we now know that when we have a system like we have, we've got these problems. We have the problem of people in power purposely trying to hide what the answers are medically. And I don't think there's any question that Fauci was part of the effort to detour anyone from looking at the Wuhan lab. And of course, he had invested there. He had just like a politician who has, hey, I passed this law. Well, now they're invested in making sure that that law was good. And if anyone says it was bad, oh, no, it wasn't bad. It just didn't have enough money. Let's get it more money. And that's how politics works in Congress. And frankly, that's how politics works in their bureaucracy and that's exactly what Fauci was doing, was covering his behind, not trying to save lives. This week, uh, you were very impressed by a uh, segment on Wyon uh, Television, which is an Indian outfit uh, from Palki Sharma. Uh, now, did you want to talk about that? Impressed may not be the right word. Um, I mean, I was impressed enough to, to send it to you and say, hey, we should do this. Uh, so, I, so I'm not really arguing that point. But it's it's interesting, I think, because in some ways what she says, I don't think is 100% accurate. But it's partially accurate. And I'm not suggesting that she's making something up or lying or it, it, that's not what this is about. Palki Sharma is a is kind of the main anchor for the world is one network. It's an Indian TV media outlet and has a lot of videos uh, uh, about Asia and what's happening and so on. And, and all over the world, what's happening tends to be more focused on Asia. And so I that's how I kind of bumped into it. This is what she says. And then then let's talk about it. She says, look at what's happening in the U.S. It is now one of the biggest Omicron hotspots. The U.S. is running out of everything. Testing kits, hospital beds, health workers, and now nursing home staff. There's a shortage of everything in America. And these shortages are getting worse by the day. And then she goes on a couple sentences later to say the Biden administration was clearly not prepared for this. So the hit is a hit on the Biden administration for clearly not being prepared. Now, you can't prepare for everything, but but this isn't day one of a new pandemic. This is like year three of, of an ongoing pandemic. So there's a little bit less of an excuse for not being prepared. But that's not the part that really grabbed me. The part that grabbed me, I was in London a, a couple months ago for something, and uh, it was actually an election-type referendum. And uh, I had someone, a, a security guard at the event, uh, who I chatted with for two seconds, lean into me and say, what the heck is wrong with America? And kind of make the argument, it's not the first time. What's wrong? The world kind of depends on you guys. You know, get your together. <laughs> and, and it's hard to argue with that because no matter how, you know, who you think is responsible for our not being together, uh, it's pretty hard to argue that it is together. So, um, and increasingly, that is how I think a lot of regular people and by that, I just mean people who don't have a political axe to grind. They didn't make the statement because they're running for office or something. They're a security guard or they're a cab driver or they're at the bank or they're and people that I bump into who aren't Americans, who are pretty scared about how dysfunctional America is. And especially there are shortages of everything because 
throughout a lot of the world, I know, I know not in the United States, which may be part of the problem, but throughout a lot of the world, not having shortages, being able to go into a store and having all kinds of choices of nice products you'd like to buy, that's a really good thing, a really good thing that people like. And they associate it with America and with capitalism and with, you know, the West. And the, that's what they like about the West. I mean, I know it's what in, the, in, the, in academia in the United States maybe is not quite as popular, but uh, and in, in Washington, D.C. as well. But that's what they like. And so when you hear them talking about America has all these shortages, America, it was with with the COVID, you know, you would expect America to respond more effectively than other countries because we have more wealth and so more ability to spend money to get what we need to respond correctly. We have a lot of doctors. We have a lot of expertise. We have a lot of bureaucrats saying that they can solve the next pandemic, um, you know, and and so. I, I present this really because I think we have to recognize that throughout, throughout my life, oftentimes we were told, oh, America's hated throughout the world. America is not hated throughout the world. America, if you were to say is loved or hated, is more loved throughout the world than hated. And it is loved for the right reasons. And it is largely hated for the right reasons, too. Now, with countries who hate us, no, countries never come up. They never come up with the right reason to do anything. But individuals, you know, and, and I've talked about different places I've been where I find out, you know, we, the CIA, you know, uh, did some maneuver with some coup 20 years ago that, you know, I try to keep up, but I didn't know. This is uh, Uruguay I'm thinking about specifically. But, uh, you know, when they don't like us, I, it's hard for me to really be, you know, uh, get my back up because I think, well, they, they don't like us because we did wrong. I like people who recognize right and wrong. So uh, anyway, um, I think it's important for us to realize that we don't have to fulfill any particular role of world leadership or anything else. That's not what I'm saying. Although I think when you do fulfill that role and you promise that you're going to defend people and, and do all kinds of things, you're kind of honor bound to do what you say you're going to do or to alert them, hey, I'm changing my mind. I'm not going to do that. So, so there's that part of it. But, but my point here is we are, we are undercutting what is a good reputation and we are undercutting it by being stupid and not doing things that make sense. Let's use our freedom. Um, you know, early on in this uh, pandemic, you had two examples. You had the Chinese example where they're literally wield, uh, welding, welding, not wielding, welding, uh, you know, gates shut on apartment buildings just to force people to stay in. And then you had Taiwan where they were tracing and they were doing all kinds of things, but without, without violating anybody's rights. And of course, Taiwan did better. Now it's an island. It has some advantages. There's this or that. But the truth is, the free society's response to crisis is better than the top-down, draconian, thuggish, totalitarian government response. And that's not just unique to this. It's happened again and again and again. And, and so we need people in public office who like the free society's response to things, not the draconian, totalitarian response. I noticed that for uh, December 28th, WIT producers now, there's a picture of, was it Colonel Renault? Uh, what was his name? Uh, yes. Of, uh, of Casablanca fame. And uh, your mention of, uh, oh, I'm, I tell you, I really am out of it. I am so tired. <laughs> <laughs> well, this, you know, we had, we, we're, we're going to get to Casablanca, or not Casablanca, actually. We're going to get to one of my other favorite movies, but I encourage people to go. We won't talk much about this because I'll, I'll give you the, the headline uh, other than whip producers now, which, of course, is a takeoff on Gerald Ford's 1970s 
whip inflation now. He had win buttons and they were going to whip inflation and uh, they were going to do that somehow by talking everybody uh, against raising prices or spending too much at the grocery store. And of course, the cause of the inflation was the government spending a ton of money uh, and adding money to the money supply. And of course, the reason we're having inflation and nobody should be shocked, shocked that we're having inflation is because the, the federal government has been spending like crazy. We've had a Fed that has been priming the pump really since 2008 with no stop. And so, you know, we've gone from what, eight or nine or 10 trillion to $27 trillion in debt and, and uh, you know, adding trillions all the time. And all the time people in Congress thinking about some new, oh, here's an idea that's a couple more trillion dollars. And so, <clears throat> so we have a big problem. Uh, and, and I think you might enjoy this, this script. We try not to, not to cry during it. Uh, but the idea is that the, the Biden administration thinks maybe one of the ways that they can get at inflation is to threaten and beat up and investigate and harass businesses that are raising their prices as if, as if you know, uh, oil companies are raising their prices just to be mean, just to be mean right now. Doesn't have anything to do with him canceling the Keystone Pipeline. Doesn't have anything to do with him saying, "Hey, we're gonna do, we're gonna raise all the prices on federal leases." I mean, this is it, it's pretty ridiculous, and it, it's also pretty ridiculous to be using to be doing everything you can to like screw up the the oil industry, and then be taking all the reserve. And putting it in to try to keep prices low anyway. It's like you're kind of, why is that in reserve? Because you know what? A lot of planes and ships and tanks and other things run on oil. The U.S. military doesn't run on, you know, electric cars and electric tanks and stuff. And, and so there's some reason to still have oil. And of course, that's not the only, the only reason, because you know what? My car runs on oil, too. And I think most, most of the other people around here uh, is the same way. Anyway, go read Whip Producers now. And, uh, and, and, you know, if you voted twice for Biden, you should feel doubly sorry. Uh, the other one that we won't talk about, but, what, but I think you'll have fun. I had a lot of fun writing it. I think you'll have a lot of fun reading it. And that is Tom Paine, common sense after all, Tom Paine sues Facebook. And uh, recently, Facebook blocked some of Tom Paine's writing. It's, I mean, I don't know what else you need, like an angel to come down, you know, the, the heavens to clear. We now live in a country where our social media companies with, with applause and funds from the government are blocking Tom Paine's writings. Apparently, if the American Revolution were to happen today, it would be stopped by Facebook and Twitter. It's just ridiculous. Uh, but Tom Paine has uh, some things to say about it. So, uh, so I encourage you to, to uh, go see Tom Paine, Sue's Facebook, and that's uh, Friday's piece. And then uh, the one that, that we probably talked about the most, and I had the most fights with people on Facebook or, you know, different places uh, uh, about, and that was Monday's piece, Heroism and Love Abounding. And uh, highfalutin title, but uh, it's, a, it's, it's about the movie It's a Wonderful Life, which, you know, is always playing over Christmas and which I always sit down and watch. And I'm always disappointed if I'm having too much fun and I don't get to kind of see it from the very beginning to the very end. And of course, the movie is a little, you know, it's a little commie in places where, you know, the bad people. Well, it, it talks about, you know, money and, and uh, they don't have money and Potter's a bad guy because he has money. Of course, it turns out in the end that Potter has money because he's a bad guy. And, and that's one of the things I say to people who, who talk about the rich as if they're bad people is who are you talking about? Are you talking about people that, you know, they got their money in some bad way? 
because uh, of course, if, if you've seen It's a Wonderful Life, and if you haven't, I don't know, I don't know where you've been hiding. But but actually, I had a good friend who sent me a note that said, I haven't seen the movie. I said you got to watch it. So so that's the last surviving non-watcher who <laughs> now will have this movie. To me, it's about real life, which so many movies are about someone who's a superstar strung out on this drug and this happens and that happens and all kinds of things that never happen in most people's lives. Or it's about shoot him up and this and that. And then he jumped over seven buildings and flew across or it's complete fantasy, as if what I was just talking about wasn't complete fantasy. And I like movies about real life because I find real life really fascinating. Um, and it's also about people doing the right thing and sometimes being a little bit sad about it and, and realizing they've had to make sacrifices that, that just hurt a little bit. And then realizing in the end that, you know what, I'm glad I made that sacrifice. It was the right, it was for the greater good, my greater good, that, that doing the right thing is not only the right thing, it's almost always the smartest thing to do if you want to live a happy, happy life. That's my two cents uh, about how to live a happy life. Now, you're talking about a column written by Monica Hesse uh, for it, the Washington yes. In which she basically uh, said that uh, Mary Bailey, not George Bailey, is the true hero of the movie. And yes, we all know the story. Basically, you know, George Bailey wanted to go out and do things. He gets married instead and uh, settles down in, in this town of his, what was it, Bedford Falls? Bedford Falls, not father's business and, and builds little houses for the common folk and then gets in trouble. Uh, and thinks the only way out is to commit suicide so his, his wife and family can get, collect the insurance money and uh, and then a, an angel intervenes. That's basically the story. Yes, and I point out in this commentary just a few of the sacrifices he's made. For instance, he saved money himself, which matters to me, to go to college. He's about to go off to college. His dad, and, and he's going to have a trip to Europe his dad dies. So who's going to take over the building loan? Well, he gives up his trip to Europe to stay and help deal with the, the problems at the, the building loan. He's then ready to go off to college, but they won't, they're going to let Potter shut down the building loan unless there's someone they trust to run it. And they say, George Bailey, you're the only person we trust to run it. So he gives up that money and gives it to his brother so his brother can go to college with the idea his brother's then going to come back and he'll go to college while his brother's dealing with the savings and loan and keeping it going or the building alone. And of course, his brother comes back. He's married. He's willing to do what he said he would do. But his wife, her father owns some, is, is a very wealthy guy. He's got a new business he's starting and George realizes, no, the best thing for Harry isn't to come back. He's got this opportunity. He's not going to stand in the way. Now, that's his own choice. But it's like it's the way good people think about things. And it's why his brother loves him. And it's why he loves his brother. And it's like it's the way good people function. And it's it's beautiful to see. He then, of course, you know, he's his brother uh, goes to war. His brother saves, he saved his brother's life when he was like eight. His brother saves everybody in the ship and is getting the Congressional Medal of Honor when his kind of loony uncle, Uncle Billy, who he kind of works at the building alone, but is not always, you know, he's got things tied around his fingers to remember. He's not the sharpest uh, tool in the shed. I really sympathize with Uncle Billy today. <laughs> I sympathize with him every day. Anyway, uh, uh, well, he's got $8,000 to deposit. He makes a mistake. He hands it to Potter in the newspaper. He has it. Somehow it gets, it's, it, if you see the movie, it all makes sense, mostly. And, uh, and so then they have this money that's lost. 
he could go to he could end up going to prison because he doesn't have this and the building and loan shut down and the whole world ended. He's got this life insurance policy and um, Potter says to him, you're worth more dead than alive. And he realizes he is worth more on paper dead than alive. So he says something, you know, he's, he's going to throw himself off in heaven. They send down his guardian angel, Clarence, great job by Clarence in the movie. But the, the, the movie ends with him deciding, because he's seen all of what a terrible world it is and, uh, and what a difference he's made. And, and he decides, take me back to my wife and kids. He says, I don't care what happens to me. Well, he comes back and Mary Hatch Bailey, Donna Reed, and I think Donna Reed is not only a great actress, but possibly the most beautiful woman who's ever, ever uh, walked on the earth. Um, just wonderful and, and great character here. She has gone. She realizes something's up. She goes and finds out what it is. She starts to talk to people. They send all this money. He's the richest guy in town. Everything good happens. So Monica Hesse sees all this and says, basically, well, Mary is the hero. And somehow George is kind of a, a loser. And she has several reasons for this. One is, is that uh, there was a run on the bank when they were first married, the day of their wedding. They're headed out of town with all this money that George has saved that he gives to her. And she says, oh, I feel like a bootlegger's wife. And there's all this money. And all of a sudden, there's, a, there's something happening at the bank as they're leaving town. It looks like a run on the bank. Well, he can't leave. And I still, I, it makes me feel like it, 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 she says, oh, George, don't, don't, let's not stop. It sounds like my wife, and, and she, my wife is not, is not dumb. She realized, oh, no, don't let him get sucked into that bank. We'll never get out of here. So anyway, well, that's exactly what does happen. There's a run on the bank. It could shut the whole, or the building alone, shut the whole thing down. So he's talking to people saying, don't panic. Don't panic. Don't buy. Don't sell your shares to Potter for 50 cents on the dollar. Hang on. We can make this. It's a beautiful thing. And in the meantime, she comes up and she sees what's going on and thinks quick on her feet and says, hey, I've got some money. How much do you need? And they end up finding a way to give everybody what they need to stay, you know, solvent. But that's their honeymoon money. And she, Monica Hesse, the Washington Post columnist, points out, well, this, you know, this shows that Mary saved the day. Now, I submit to you that Mary did save the day. Of course. She's brilliant. What a great lady. She saved the day because she, she recognized her future, her husband's future was more important than a honeymoon, a honeymoon trip. And so she gave up that money, but she didn't do that alone. She did it because she saw what George was saying. She did it because George earned that money in the first place or it wouldn't have existed. And of course, George couldn't say, hey, I'm going to run down to the car and take the money I've just given my wife away. I mean, first of all, that's not the right thing to do. And second of all, don't do that. It reminds me in New Jersey a million years ago, uh, my, there was a neighbor who told my dad that he was really in trouble on Christmas because his wife had told him, don't get me anything for Christmas. And he believed her. <laughs> so it was, that's one of those things. Don't do that. Don't give your, mom, your wife a bunch of money for the honeymoon on, the, on your wedding day and then take it back. I'm just suggesting that's not a good move. Anyway, that was the, that's the sort of things. And like at the end, of course, Mary saves the day. But you know what? If George was a deadbeat, if George hadn't worked 
And and again, it's not a contest. It's not like if George is really good, then Mary's not. Or if Mary's really a heroic, then George is not. That's not how these things work. But but one of the reasons that they all came and gave, the main reason was Mary asked them, because that's how the world works. If nobody asks, it doesn't happen, no matter how much they like George. But if they didn't like George, if George was a big jerk, they wouldn't have showed up at his house with all kinds of money. So the whole, to me, and I, there was someone on Facebook who I was arguing with uh, on this, and I just made the point, this is a beautiful story about people in love, about people who care about each other and have each other's back, almost like the O. Henry thing where the, you know, the gift of the Magi, that sort of just, you know, love that that's just so heartwarming. And for someone to try to use that to kind of say, no, he's the, the, the woman in this case is the hero, not the man. And it's, it's, it's silly. It's silly. And it, and to what end? Because it seems to me that our world is suffering because this example, I mean, it's, it's not suffering because the example of Mary is nowhere. Because I think people do see that example a lot. And well, they should. It's a great example. It's a great way to say, you know what? This is a good way to, to be a spouse. That's a great example. But it may be an example that more women kind of look to than men. You know how the role model thing kind of works. And as we've been told, and, and this is the male role model that, I mean, if you were to say, what role model could we spend five minutes talking to every male person in this country about? I'd say, pick this guy. This is a good one. And instead, it's all, let's beat it up. Let's pretend that somehow he's a jerk, that somehow this is a sexist. And I had someone comment on, the, on my personal Facebook page, which I usually do public posts, but, you know, that, that, well, Mary wouldn't have been able to do anything else, you know, because she, that, you know, that she became a librarian at the end, which is always, you know, you know, she, and they, at, at the end during his dream, you know, of course, they can't make it out that she's wildly happy, <laughs> rich and successful, or, or it wouldn't work for him to go, oh, I really made a difference. So, uh, but, but that somehow, you know, because of the sexism at that time, she would have been held back. And of course, there was all kinds of sexism at that time. There's sexism today. There'll be sexism tomorrow. And there was a lot more then. And it's not wrong to point it out. But the truth is, it sort of misses the point of the whole thing, which is not about, oh, isn't it sad that Mary couldn't have made it without George? The point is, they can be together if they continue to have faith in each other like they have had. And, and so it's, it's this beautiful story that someone wants to throw a rock at? I see the movie as often misinterpreted. Among my libertarian friends, many of them who were influenced by Ayn Rand, they see it as a, some sort of pee to altruism. And, uh, and I think that's all confused. But I understand why they're at it, because in a sense, it's kind of similar to the feminism of this uh, Monica Hess piece. And uh, there seems to be a feminist element lingering there is that there's something, you know, the, the women are better than men. This guy is a loser. And this plays at this sex war that I find kind of vexing. But there is a sense which her reaction is why we have the red pill movement among men and some women. And the red pill movement is the idea, oh, we're seeing that this is about class greed on the part of feminists and willing to take things from men to downgrade them as much as possible and upgrade women at the expense of men. And that's how they see this. And then they see the deal in the real world as a deal that doesn't benefit men, but benefits some women. Okay, that's how that red pill movement seems to work, as, as I understand it. And I'm sympathetic to some of their points. And especially when you deal with Monica Hess's writing here, I'm sympathetic to that critique. But 
I think it misses the point, and I think the altruism story misses the point because it's not about whose values. Uh, the altruism problem in in from objectivists is that you know he gives up his values and becomes a second hander or something, and it gets it gets all very complete. It all gets very creepy. Uh, the, the objectivist critique, the Ayn Rand kind of fan critique of this movie is kind of creepy because what's really going on is that none of us get all of our values. We always have to make sacrifices of one value over another. We all have goofy dreams and some of them aren't going to come true. Okay. That's just simply the case. That's what real life is. So how do we make these decisions in this movie? What we see is that a woman domesticates a man. He wanted to go off and do all these, you know, romantic consumer adventure kind of things i mean he wanted to go off and see the world and so that kind of stuff which is right. not bad about that it's just that it's 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 it has nothing to do with production and everything to do with consumption he wanted adventures which was basically treated as a consumption right group. and she wanted to make a, a life and she gets her way she gets her way all the way through this movie <laughs> she wanted to live in that old house she yeah. wanted those kids right right yeah. and and, and him to like that. That's he's loving it. He's loving it. Exactly. It's and and you know, that's not it. Look, that's not the story for every man and woman who have ever been married. Oh, sure, sure. But that's a common story. And 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 it has similarities in a lot of different relationships. And and I think guys, as they get older, will say, thank goodness I have. A, you know, I wasn't so quick to want to settle down, but I'm glad I did. And, and so that is a, a lot, uh, I think, of the of the movie. One thing that that uh, was discussed, you know, about Mary Hatch Bailey, Hatch being her maiden name, um, is that, of course, she wouldn't have had people said, well, why does she become a, a librarian at the end of this dream sequence, you know, where the, it's not really a dream, but he's not, he doesn't exist anymore. He's with the angel. He's seeing Bedford Falls turn into Pottersville and, you know, all the people he knows don't know him and they've had terrible lives instead of better lives. And then at the end, he says, where's Mary? Show me what's happened to Mary. And Mary is, locking up at the library she's an old maid she's never married you know you don't even hear that term anymore but it was a, a common term at that time and um and so he goes and sees it and of course she's you know they try to make her look not that good looking but it's impossible so she still looks really great and you're you're realizing that there'd be a line of guys outside the library every night waiting for her to lock up but um but of course, they can't show her married to someone else and everything looking great. Anyway, the the argument is, well, that's the only type of job she could have gotten. And so, of course, she was locked into this thing and all this. And it's like these are fictional people. You pretty much have to go with what you got. You can't pretend that they really wanted to do something else. But this week, a couple of days later, I find out that a wonderful, wonderful woman who happened to be 94, Ethel May Humphreys, who I think you, you know of as well, Tim, uh, passed away. And she had been on the board of Cato Institute, uh, had, had supported a number of different causes that I've worked for, or been involved in, or cheered for uh, throughout my life. And uh, and just a really neat person, very nice, very smart, and and just a, a joy. And I just think I didn't know her that well. I, I got to eat lunch with her a couple of times and and uh, and and cherish that. But it was interesting to me that she took over uh, a, a big part in Tamco, which is the roofing company that now is, I think, one of the biggest in the world, uh, when she was 23 years old in 1950, not too much after 1946, which is when everything's happening, not everything, but but uh, the, the movie takes place. It's a wonderful life. And she reminds me a little bit of Mary Bailey because She's savvy and she's funny and fun and she's sharp and she's a doer. And, uh, 
And so it's the idea that, and, and look, I'm, I'm not saying, oh, there was no discrimination. There was, there was all kinds of discrimination. But the point is, there were still lots of women who could not be kept down. And the reason that's important to point out is because today, when, you know, the, like the CRT and, the, you know, oh, that, that uh, you're, if you're a person of color, you're oppressed. And you think, well, it's not, it's not okay to tell white people that the white kids that somehow they're an oppressor because, uh, you know, a hundred years ago, somebody did something who has the same color skin, but it's also not okay to tell people of color, kids of color, that they are somehow automatically oppressed because then they start to be looking for where the oppression's coming from. And in the same way, Someone had mentioned, well, she wouldn't have had any chance talking about Mary Bailey. And I wouldn't count her out because what makes people successful is that spark, is that perseverance, is that determination. And that is true today. And it was true in 1946. And it was true in 1950 when Ethel May Humphreys, as a 23-year-old woman, in 1950s America took a major role in that company and began to build it. Um, it's, you know, her father had built it and, and her husband who joined her helped build it. But I mean, she played a major role. And, and again, these sorts of stories get missed when it's all the past was all terrible and there was nothing women could do. There was nothing anybody could do. It's just, it's not accurate. And uh, I just thought it was interesting after having some of that discussion about the fictional character, here's someone I knew in real life about the same period of time when women couldn't do anything. And here she was, I think she was chief operating officer, or chief something. I mean, she was one of the top people in the company at 23 years old and, and, kicked butt, so to speak. And here, though, the movie really accentuates a story that I find interesting because what we have here is a bunch of people who change their values. Well, George changes his values, and it's really about his value changes all the way through. That's important. Yes. Uh, but Mary has one value from the beginning. And early on, she whispers to him that she'll love him till the day he dies. Yes, when she's like eight years old or something. Something like that. And that is the difference. So without him, when he leaves the world because of Clarence's intervention, uh, she doesn't have that value. She can't have that value. So she has not merely does she have limited opportunities, you might say, but she also has limited impetus because the impetus that changed everybody's life here was her love for George and George's love for her. And then they cooperated on a bunch of endeavors. One was a family, of course, but the other endeavors they did was the uh, building and loan, which actually did help people in uh, the town that is yes. Pottersville, that is Bedford Falls. So it's a story of cooperation leading to mutual benefit all over the place. To me, this and is actually a major story of... of uh, the benefits of society and cooperation and even capitalism, because you have a competitor who actually has a place in a town that without him would have been a one, a one businessman town that would have been kind of ugly because that man's values weren't very good compared to his values. It also, I think really shows how cooperation works in a broader way too. It's not just their relationship, uh, um, you know, in the in the footnote on this piece, I mentioned this flick's got a lot of heroes because one of the things it shows is how the cab driver is a hero. He's a great guy who helps and 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 the policeman. And then, of course, during the dream when George didn't exist, well, they're not so helpful. He, you know, it, it's, they don't have the same thing. He asks the, the, the cab driver about his wife, his kids. He says, you see my wife and kids? She left me six months ago. And in other words, their lives didn't turn out as well. And you see this reciprocal cooperation. And 
and people who think capitalism and this this isn't a movie you know saying hey capitalism is the greatest thing in the world it's subtle but if you understand capitalism you understand there is competition there's also cooperation and 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 there's even cooperation sometimes among people who mainly compete all of that's important but this is shown very much in a social way um, and I submit that it's a, it's your point is a great one about this is what capitalism is all about, but it's also worth recognizing this. If you don't think anything about economics, I think you're going to have a better life if you engage with people and, and cooperate on all kinds of things. And, uh, you know, that's, I, I'm just me. I could be wrong, but it, 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 uh, I, I, uh, I go down to Starbucks every day, almost every day. And, uh, and I, I spend enough time there. I got to talking to some of the people and then I just, I enjoyed it. And so I decided to do more of it. And I decided to start putting a, you know, every once in a while I tip maybe, I, I put a dollar in every time I get a, a coffee and it doesn't make the coffees more expensive. My wife, I don't think watches these or listens, so I'm okay. <laughs> but anyway, otherwise it'd be, you do what? Anyway, uh, no, I'm just kidding. But, but that relationship, those relationships, now these, these are not going to probably be my closest friends for the rest of my life, but I'm engaged in some way there. I care about what happens. I notice when they put up their Christmas stuff and I know the, the woman who, who paints the stuff and she is brilliant. And I tell her that. And, and it's like, I could just go pick up my drink and save maybe the bug and tip and go home. But I like that relationship. And, and, you know, this is, it's one little tiny thing, but it's like, it's, it's that sort of relationship across, uh, you know, society, both economic and social, religious, whatever they are, these are important things. And, and, uh, and I think it's a wonderful life sends a real message about just how important they are. If somebody wanted to read a book that explored these themes, that are just sort of lingering everywhere in this movie. I think that they couldn't do a better a job than Adam Smith's first book, not the wealth of nations, but the theory of moral sentiments. And that's the book that begins how selfish soever man may be supposed. There are evidently some principles in his nature, which interest him in the fortune of others and render their happiness necessary to him. Though he derives nothing from it, except the pleasure of seeing it. That's how he begins the book. And it's all about the importance of how virtues flourish in society through human cooperation, starting with that little kernel of sympathy. And that's where he first develops the idea that uh, society also blossoms through the process of cooperation. It's actually basically about affection and love and sympathy and all those things. And that's one of the reasons why this movie is so successful. It's also one of the reasons why sophisticated people who write for major newspapers tend not to like it, and why the critics, when it first came out, hated this movie. Yes. They thought, that the, they thought that the morals were, they thought it was a very weird little movie that didn't make any sense. It didn't fit yeah. their, their obsessions at all. And this is why it's probably Frank Capra's most popular movie today. But it didn't succeed in the beginning. It developed a cult following during the age of television. Very interesting artifact of uh, our culture that a movie that did not succeed at first actually wins in the end and is the best of all the Christmas movies, even better than all the various iterations of the Christmas Carol, which is sort of the reverse movie of this. Yes. They're very yes. similar in some ways. You they know, have... the Christmas Carol I like best. I, mean, I, I don't know. I like best, but one of the ones I love is the old Mr. Magoo Christmas Carol. I haven't seen that day. When I was a kid. I remember seeing that. And then years later, when I was a teenager, seeing it and thinking, this is kind of neat. So, but you don't see Mr. Magoo Christmas Carol much anymore. The other Christmas movie I love is Miracle on 34th Street, which is kind of a Thanksgiving Christmas movie, uh, but wonderful, wonderful movie. I liked it, though I'm not a big fan of 
Santa Claus stories. I much prefer the Christmas Carol by Dickens. You know, we should uh, run as a thought next week that Adam Smith, I, I, I'll bet we have at some point oh, yeah. uh, done it as a thought, but we should run it again. It's a good after the holidays reminder that this is some of what the holidays are, are talking about and, and connect that moral sentiment to somebody who's kind of one of the fathers or whatever of, of uh, the free market. Right. Uh, the two major figures in the development of libertarian ideology uh, before the 20th century are Adam Smith and Herbert Spencer. And both of those figures were theorists of sympathy. They are the ones who brought sympathy into the forefront of ethical theorizing and sociological theory. Uh, that was extremely important in both thoughts, uh, in both thinkers. And it's weird to hear people talk about Adam Smith and Herbert Spencer as uncaring people, because actually their whole moral thought depends on the notion of sympathy. And it's a very weird thing now, now to deal with people who think that the idea of liberty and limited government is an uncaring thing. And that's not their point of view at all because their point of view is that society flourishes with human cooperation, and it all depends on that kernel of sympathy that it's one of the main features of our minds that allows us to be the kind of creature we are, and what good we have is partly as a result of this sympathy. Yes, yes. Well, on that, that uh, excellent note, um, happy, uh, happy 2021 for a little bit, and then... Uh, Happy New Year. I'm looking forward to 2022. Well, I'll look forward to it for a few more days. <laughs> See ya. Thanks. Thanks.